getting to the end of another week. Um, we have a homework assignment that is due on Monday that covers chapters 12 and 13 and we're just about done with 13. We'll finish that up today. There is an iTunes quiz, the second one, which will be available starting on Monday. I've got it already. I just haven't loaded it up into the class yet. Uh, that'll be available all the whole week, so it'll be available starting on Monday. You can take that any time during the week. It will cover the pictures from the end of the last quiz, which would be the 4th of October through the 7th of November, counting today's picture up there right now. Uh, quiz 6 will be available next weekend. That'll be chapters 13 and 14, and we'll be doing 14 next week, so that'll be available next weekend. And then the third article review is coming up due for the 19th. I have that scheduled. So getting closer and closer to the end. We're now you know, to the point where a month after this stuff, we're, we're done. We're long done. We'll be done with the final exam at that point. So any questions on anything up there? No, no, no. It's Friday. Let's get it over with, right? All right. Picture of the day for today then is actually this is the, one of the moons of Saturn, Dione, and this is taken in a uh, projection. So this is actually the entire surface of the moon. We're looking at it all stretched out. So if you look way up here to the north, you see how everything is really stretched out because you're taking that little tiny bit of material at the North Pole and stretching it out to a very long thing. You, you see that sometimes with um, maps of the world where the top gets very distorted because you're stretching out what was really going up to a point there out to the same length as parts that were at the equator here. So lots of detail at the equator. North and south poles are uh, very wiped out. But what we notice on this moon is that there's a very dark patch here. One part of the moon, one of the hemispheres is very, very dark. Uh, a lot of carbon or sooty deposits on it. Whereas the other side, the opposite side, is pretty much nice and clean, nice and bright white. Uh, this is a moon of Saturn. It means it's made up of lots, very far out in the solar system, made up of lots of ices. So water ice, methane, ammonia ices. Um, so it should be nice and bright and that's what we actually see here on the, this side. When you put this all together and look at how this moon orbits, it orbits a lot like our own moon. It's locked to Saturn. In fact, almost all the moons in the solar system are locked to their planet. It means they keep one side facing towards the planet. So if one side is facing towards the planet, then that means as the moon orbits, it's going to have the same part as always leading. So as it's orbiting, it's keeping one side, all, my side is always keeping towards you. My face is always going into the material as I'm going around. That because it's close to the rings actually means that it's picking up lots of little ring particles. Ring particles are mostly icy little bits of things and it keeps it nice and fresh and white on this side whereas the other side which is always trailing behind has the darker material that has built up on that side. So it has to really to do with how it's orbit orbiting and if you also if you look here you'll notice that you don't see quite as many craters on this side. Probably that material is slowly not immediately, but slowly over time filling in those craters. So if I look right in here, I see a few little craters, little craters. I don't see big chunks here with not a lot of big craters. Whereas when you go over here, lots of big craters in a circle the same size, lots of bigger craters. So this side is actually getting filled in over time. So essentially think of it as a little snowfall on the moon. 
It's collecting these particles from space, from ring particles that happens to be near and collecting them. And it gives this moon a two-faced appearance. One side very bright and white, the other side very dark and dusty. And just really from the way that it's orbiting around, around and where it happens to be orbiting around Saturn. So this was actually taken by the Cassini spacecraft. We can't get any view close to this from Earth. Hubble Space Telescope wouldn't begin to get you an image like this. You actually really have to be out there at the planet to planet near the moon to be able to study it like this. So, nice picture of a moon there, one of the moons of Saturn. And that's the last one that I'm including for the quiz. Anything else will come for the fourth quiz, which will be around the time of the final exam. There'll be one more coming up. So, questions? It must be Friday, okay. Alrighty, well let's go ahead back to chapter 13 then. And yes, they do. Okay, so we were right here, and I'm going to come come to this for a second, and then I got to go back, and I've got a video clip to show. But this is where we were finished up last time. I had talked a little bit about the equivalence principle, which was Einstein's thought experiment, not an experiment that's that's really easy to do. We can't take the astronaut in this box and take it out into space and accelerate it. Hard enough to do that now. Right? Without any outside interference, we can do that a little bit better now than we could. But back 100 years ago when Einstein was coming up with this, there was no way to actually test this experiment. So this is, becomes the postulate. This is something that, we just accept, that was just accepted of general relativity. And it based, everything else was based on this. And it was really said that there was no difference between accelerating an elevator accelerating upward, and a gravitational force accelerating downward. One of the things that this gave us was a new theory of gravity, a new way that gravity actually works. Under Newton, gravity was a force between two objects. The Earth pulls on the Moon, the Moon pulls on the Earth, and that keeps them in orbit around each other. That's not what really happens. There is not a force between, between them. The way this looks at it is the gravity actually, uh, the mass of the object deforms space. So it deforms space and then the moon, the earth deforms space around it and the moon moves in that deformed space in the shortest path it possibly can. And that all comes from, comes from this equivalence principle. One of the other things that it gives us is that if you pass close to a, a massive object, Anything's path will change. A force of gravity, according to Newton, depended on the masses of the objects. So light. Light has no mass, so it would not be affected by gravity. It could pass right by things. And there's no gravitational force because, if you recall, gravitational force was, no, not the permanent marker. We don't want that on the board. Depended on the mass of the two objects. Well, if one of those masses is a photon with no mass, then that's zero. It doesn't matter what anything else is, the force is zero. There's no gravitational force between anything else and light. But under, under Einstein, light can actually be bent as it passes close to a massive object. So this is a little bit of a picture as to what is seen here. And what it says is that under, under general relativity is that Matter will warp space. So you imagine this with a uh, sheet here 
holding out the holding out a sheet, you know, a rubber sheet or something really stiff at the edges and putting a heavy weight in the in the center. You put a little lightweight in, it'll deform it a little bit, it'll push down. It'll deform space around it. That's what the moon does, right? The earth deforms it a little bit more. The sun would do it even more. If you get to something like a black hole, that indentation is going to get worse and worse. That's going to be much stronger gravity and uh, therefore deviate things even more. Now it's shown here as a pool table with a pool ball, but this would do the same thing if this was light. A light beam coming under Newton would just go straight by, but under Einstein it would curve. That's a sign of a good scientific theory. It makes a prediction that is different from something that had been predicted before. And it was something that could go and be tested. How can we test it? We have to find a massive object to look at. Well, the closest massive object is the sun. So what was done several years after general relativity came out was to go to observe stars near the sun. It's hard to do, right? Go out and look at the sun there. Look at all the stars nearby it. You see nothing, right? Sky's too bright, except during a solar eclipse. If you go look at a solar eclipse, the sun, a total solar eclipse, the sun is blocked out. The sun will get the sky will get as dark as night, and you'll be able to see the stars near the sun for that short period of time. And travels were made to eclipses, where eclipses were going to occur, to look for the positions of stars. Did they change from where they had been before when they were no place nowhere near the sun to where they are now? And it was found that they actually that they actually were, that Einstein was actually correct. And this is how gravity works. It's not really, Newton's wrong. Even though we teach this, I taught you this a little while ago, it works for almost everything we use. But in reality, it's not really a force between two objects. It's really that one of the, the, each mass is deforming space and time around it. And every other object then moves in that deformed space in the proper, the shortest path that it could possibly take which typically is not a straight, not a straight line. Now let me, yeah, I'm going to come back to that in a second. So let me escape out of here. I've got one little video clip I want to show. Um, let me see, pause. Shows the same thing we were looking at, but get a little bit more of a visual, visual aid there trying to see how the things are, are deformed, how the heavier, you can imagine a heavier mass there, if instead of throwing a loaf of bread in, if you throwed a bowling ball in there, you know, it would have deformed it even more and would have changed how things orbit, would have changed how fast things orbit and the orbits that they would take. Now we're talking about black holes here and one of the little misconceptions of them is that black holes are these great cosmic vacuum cleaners and Really, the black hole doesn't do much until you get down to, if you recall, the Schwarzschild radius we talked about last time. Unless you're getting down close to that, maybe several times that size, black holes are really no different than any other form of gravity. That means you could take the sun right now, crush it down to a black hole, and it's going to get pretty dark. We just lost our source of light. It's going to get cold. We lost our source of heat. But the Earth's going to just orbit around as it always has. We're not near close enough. Remember the Schwarzschild radius for the sun was a couple kilometers. So unless we were a few kilometers away from the sun, we're not going to notice any difference. If you get close, that's when we start to see all of the different effects that a black hole can cause. But otherwise, it really, there's no big difference between a black hole and any other form of mass. 
In fact, there is. There's a massive black hole at the center of our galaxy. We're orbiting around it right now. The sun is in absolutely no danger of ever being sucked into it. We're so far away, we're you know, thousands of light years, so many thousands of light years away from that, that we're not even going to be close. Even though this mass at the center of our galaxy is three to four sol- million solar masses. So not just the mass of the sun, but millions of times. It's a gigantic black hole, but it's not going to suck in any material that's orbiting that's this far out. If you're real close to that black hole, yeah, then there are some effects, and that's where you actually see energy being emitted from around a black hole. But other than that, you know, anything else converted to a black hole really wouldn't change anything right now. We could take the moon, crush the moon to a black hole, right? If you smush it down small enough, you can do that. It would still orbit around the Earth. Earth wouldn't orbit around it because its mass would still be lower than the Earth's. So it wouldn't really change anything. There might be some differences in things you'd see as the moon passed your field of view. You'd get some distortions by its gravity. But other than that, it wouldn't really change anything. And that's one of the little misconceptions is there. You know, the black hole is if the sun turns into a black hole, we get sucked right into it. And that would never happen. Now, if you put a real massive black hole at the center, if you took the sun out and put a 3 million solar mass black hole there, th- then we're in trouble. But just converting the sun to a black hole itself really would not make any difference. Question, yes, sir? Uh, what kind of star would it take to make a black hole that massive? Uh, it would take lots of stars and material. So, like a black hole would start to form, the material would be so dense, and it would continually build on itself. So, material would be spiraling in and constantly adding to the mass. It wouldn't be a star, a single star that formed it. Yes, ma'am? Okay, with black holes, mm-hmm. with stars, you know, they can come together and collide and create new. Right. Can black holes move, and you know, can they? They can move around. Together and create a larger black hole. Yeah, you can. Black holes are just, you know, they'll combine together. You won't get any kind of explosion. We talked about neutron stars maybe combining and giving a gamma ray burst. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't happen with a black hole, right? Two black holes combine, they just suck together, and they become a larger black hole. It's only material outside that event horizon, further out, that can give us the energy. Now, it's really heated up and really affected by the black holes only when it's close. Once it gets inside, you know, two big black holes, they can just merge together and become a much bigger black hole. And that's how that one at the center would actually form. It wouldn't have been a single star that would have been that large. You'd never, that would never occur. A star just can't be that big. But you could have formed it you know, 10 billion years ago when the galaxy started forming. And then you could have built on it and built on it and built on it. Over that time, it would slowly have gathered material. All right. So what would it be look like? I think we asked this uh, last time about coming close to a black hole. Would you really get stretched out? And you would to some extent, and then eventually you'd be ripped apart. That would be the tidal forces, right? We talked about the tidal forces on Earth and the moon. The moon pulls on the Earth. A tidal force just means that you're pulling on one side stronger than you're pulling on the other. Okay? So the, uh, the black hole would be down there. It's pulling some force on this side of this object. It's pulling with some force on this side. Well, this side being a little bit closer to the black hole gets a little bit larger force. Most of the, what? Always wanted to be taller. Yeah, there you go. That's a way to do it. But, but what happens is that when you get close to a black hole, I mean, for something like the Earth, it pulls the water. The water moves a little bit, and we get the tides. With something like the Jupiter and Io, Io, Jupiter tugs on Io and stretches it pulls it a little bit, and actually pulls the whole planet. 
if you have a strong enough force, you can have a force on one side that it, and the, compared to the force on the other side where the difference between those is greater than the structural bonds holding the object together. In that case, you're pulling too hard on this side, not hard enough on this side, and you start to rip the object apart. So this planet, whatever it is coming close to the black hole, would have pieces on this side pulled off first as the whole thing goes towards the black hole, but it would be ripped, stretched out and then actually ripped apart. So that's what would happen to you. So yes, you'd get taller for a little bit, and then eventually your feet would be ripped off if you're going in feet first, and your legs, and you'd actually be torn apart. And let's see, so yeah, you're going to heat it. That's where all the energy comes from. It's not once you get in, the black hole itself does not emit energy directly. It can in some cases, there is type of radiation that can escape from a black hole. But generally, once you get anything inside a black hole, there's nothing else that, no, no information coming out of it. But as this gets heated up, this can give off lots of x-rays, lots of gamma rays. It's getting heated up to extremely high temperatures. I mentioned when we talked about special relativity time dilation. The same thing happens as you get closer and closer to a black hole. Time will slow down as well. So you actually can slow down time going close, meaning that when you get in a strong gravitational field, time goes slower. So if you're on the ground floor of a skyscraper, you're closer to the gravity of the Earth, your clock's going to run a little bit slower than someone at the top of that skyscraper. Significantly for the Earth's gravity and that little difference, not much. But when you get close to a black hole, it would make a big difference. In fact, time would slow down as we're observing it and almost eventually stop as you get real close to that black hole. You would see time essentially stopping as you get real, real close. Once we get further inside, I told you Newton's laws broke down, well Einstein's laws break down when you get down to the idea of compressing all that material to the point, to a point. So there's something else we still have to understand that can mix gravity and mix the study of very, very small objects we call quantum mechanics to really be able to understand what goes on in a black hole. So not something that we completely understand and while Einstein's been proven right uh, very well with his theories so far, there's likely some point going to come something that will actually explain this, explain these even better than Einstein's theories. Escaping from the black hole, if you get inside the event horizon, you're out of luck. Your escape velocity is greater than light and Einstein's postulate, one of the postulates from special relativity said you cannot travel faster than light. But Instead of sending a person in, we'll send, send a robot probe in, it would send signals back. And as you get closer and closer, again, look how close you're getting. This is thousands of kilometers, so 6,000 miles, 600 miles, 6 miles. You're getting really, really close to that black hole. I mean, size of the sun is much larger than this. So you're, this is the sun collapsed to a black hole. The surface of the sun would have been, you know, way, way out there someplace. But when you get really, really close, the energy, energy becomes harder and harder. It becomes harder and harder to escape. You have to travel faster and faster. Now normally, when you're trying to escape from the Earth and you throw something up in the air, right, it loses energy by slowing down. Right? I throw it with some speed. It goes slower and slower and slower until it stops and then it comes back down. Well, the light rays can't do that. Light ray can't slow down. They always go at the speed of light. 
but they still have to lose energy as they escape from a black hole. So what happens to light rays when they lose energy? They don't go any slower, they still travel at the speed of light, but X-rays emitted very, very close to the black hole might come out and be visible as visible light. Visible light emitted very close to the black hole gets stretched out, its wavelength gets strength lengthened, and you stretch to infrared and then out into radio waves as it escapes from the black hole. So it loses energy. Eventually you'd get to the point where you'd stretch it so far that the light would not be able to escape. It would not be able to get away from the black hole because it would get stretched out infinitely. It would get stretched out so much that there'd be no energy left. So the photons would then at that point be trapped within the black hole. And that's what happens if you're inside here. There's no way to get any kind of information out. If you're right outside that event horizon, you can. You can still send signals out into the rest of the universe. Once you cross that line, that's, that's when you're in trouble. All right. So what's inside a black hole? Could be just about anything. We don't know what's inside a black hole. Mainly because everything that we think of, we think of things, you know, hydrogen, helium. Well, when we've crushed that black hole, we've crushed things down past the densities of the atomic nucleus. So we've crushed the atomic nuclei out of existence. So all the elements that we have up there on the periodic table, they're gone. We've crushed it down to something else. Theoretically, right now, we say that it keeps collapsing until the radius gets down to zero. There's nothing to stop it. Right? Electron pressure stopped it at a white dwarf. The neutrons together stopped it at the neutron star. There's nothing that we know of that can stop it beyond that. If it starts crushing beyond that, it becomes a zero, de zero size and infinite density. So all the material squished down to a point. Is this what really happens? Probably not, but we just don't have the theories yet that really can tell us what's going on inside a black hole. So it's going to be a mystery. What could go in there? All that information is lost. The only things we know about a black hole are its mass. It can have some amount of material. It has, uh, let's see, it, has, it can have a spin. It can still be rotating. Right? The object was rotating before. It can continue to rotate. And let's see, an electrical charge. If you throw a bunch of electrons into a black hole, it will become a negatively charged black hole. The charge does not get destroyed. The charge is still present there in the black hole. But that's about it. And honestly, electrical charge isn't going to matter too much because if you get a big positive charge or a negative charge on it, it now has an electrostatic force and it's going to start pulling in the opposite. So that's going to eventually neutralize itself. So the electrical charge normally will not be there, but it's something that could exist. But that's quite different than what we knew about stars. I could tell you the compositions of stars. Uh, I could tell you temperatures. There were lots of other things that we looked at that we could talk about. And there is nothing there. These are the only things. It's mass, but it doesn't matter whether that mass is hydrogen. Black hole will be exactly the same. That mass of helium, that mass of peanut butter, you know, take a big, take a solar mass of peanut butter and squish it down. That black hole is going to be identical to one that was created with hydrogen. There's no difference between them. It doesn't matter what was there before. It doesn't matter whether you crush the Earth down to a black hole 
or the sun down to a black hole. Be different sizes, be different masses, but everything else would be exactly the same about them. Those are the only properties that we can possibly know about a black hole. So in some ways they're very complicated objects in that they do a lot of in unusual things, but they're also very simple is that there aren't a lot of things to worry about. You don't have to worry about what they're made up of. You don't have to worry about things like temperatures that just doesn't have any meaning when you get inside a black hole. All right. So do black holes exist? Well, they're hard to detect, but we have detected some. And we're going to look here at a couple for uh, solar mass black holes, meaning things mid several times the mass of the sun. This is one of the best uh, candidates for a black hole. This is called Cygnus X1. And what we look at is we can't see the black hole itself. So if there's a black hole out there someplace in space, we have no way to detect it. We can't see the black hole. It doesn't give off any energy itself. What we can see is like we saw with the other, some of the other stars is when they're in binary systems. If there is a black hole orbiting around another star. So here's a very hot star, B-class star, one of the hotter ones. And there is an X-ray source very close to it. Now if you note, there's the box. This is at the center of the box. So this object is right about here. There's nothing else, nothing really visible there. There's some few stars, but there's not really anything else visible at the center. It's not centered on this star. It's not centered on anything else, but there is an X-ray source. So what could be giving off X-rays that doesn't show any kind of light itself, other kind of light? And that could likely be a black hole. A black hole would then be collecting matter from this star. Right? We talked about that with a regular star and a white dwarf or a regular star and a neutron star to produce a nova or to produce an x-ray burst. Well, we can also get x-ray sources as that material spirals into the black hole. Little bit different process because the black hole can't collect matter on it that we can see, but as it spirals in, it gets heated up to extremely high temperatures. So not just hundreds of degrees, thousands of degrees, but millions of degrees. Extremely hot and hot material will emit a lot of x-rays. So we see a very strong x-ray source near this star. And what do we know? What do we have to look at what we know about that star? Well, this is one of the best black hole candidates. We see one star, we can classify it, we can estimate how massive it is. That would comes out to be about 25 times the mass of the Sun. That's the star that we see. If we use Kepler's third law, uh, there was a constant in there. I'm not going to write out all the constants. But the mass depended on how things orbit, right? The, the yucky one we looked at last week. You know, your Halloween, your Halloween trick. Um, but we can measure those. So we can measure how far apart these two objects are because we can see where the x-ray source is. So we can measure how far apart they are. We can watch them and see how long it takes to orbit. That means we can determine not the individual masses, but we can find the total mass of that system. And we find out that the one star is, uh, we know is about 25 solar masses. Total mass measured like this is about 35 solar masses. So we got 35 solar masses in total. Take out 25 that we can see. That leaves us about 10 solar masses left over. Well, 10 solar masses is too much to be a white dwarf. Can't go over about 1.4. Too much to be a neutron star. Can't go over about 3. 
that leaves only a black hole. We also see a couple of other things that are important for this. We see the gas flowing from the star. So we can see this gas flowing to something that's invisible. And we see very short time scale variations in brightness. That the x-rays don't just change uh, you know, over weeks or months or even days or hours, but incredibly short time scales. The shorter time with which they vary tells astronomers that the source has to be very small. Something can't vary. A real large object, you know, a giant galaxy, can't, can't change in brightness real quick. It's too large. Well, same thing with a, little, with a star. A star can only change in brightness you know, so quick. It can get brighter, it can get fainter, but it takes a time depending on how big it is. Well, when we see extremely short time scales, things that are changing in a fraction of a second, that means it must be an incredibly small source. And the only thing that fits all of this that we know of now, unless there's something else we don't, that's completely new that we don't understand, the only thing that could possibly be about 10 solar masses could be, pu could be pulling gas from this other star but not be seen itself to give the short time scale variations to be a strong x-ray source, the only thing that fits all that that we know of would be a black hole. So a black hole is the best candidate and this would be one example. There's several others like this. This isn't just the only one. There's other ones that we've seen as well. And I've already kind of mentioned today that we got a black hole at the center of our galaxy. And we can look at that. We'll look at that coming up uh, next week as how we can measure that there's a black hole at the center of our galaxy and something that is millions of times the mass of the sun. All right, well, as we finish up here, here's just a drawing of what we might see. So what's really happening there, there's the black hole itself. Way down there, if that's about 10 solar masses, you know, that's going to be still something that's only miles, you know, tens of miles across in terms of size. So it's down there. Material is being pulled from this star because they're close enough. If you push this further and far enough away, you wouldn't even notice that. And it doesn't, can't go straight in. It spirals in because it's already moving. And it's spiraling and as it does, this disk, we call an accretion disk, heats up to millions of degrees. Heats something up to millions of degrees, it's going to be emitting a lot of x-rays. And that's where we're getting all the x-rays are from this area as we come in close to the black hole. Not getting right into it, we're still quite a ways away, but getting close to that black hole and it's sucking the matter from this companion. Once the companion goes through its life, then that will stop and the black hole will cease to be an x-ray source and would make it essentially invisible again. So eventually this star will go through its life, become larger, uh, probably expel its outer layers. Some of that will add to the black hole. But once it does all that, probably not massive enough to become a supernova. 20, what is it, 25? It's, yeah, it might become a supernova. Blow up, some of that material would be collected by the black hole. But once that's done, there'd be nothing left. You'll either have a black hole and a neutron star orbiting each other, or perhaps two black holes orbiting each other, depending on the mass that's left behind after that star. Yes, sir? So the supernova wouldn't disrupt the black hole? No. No, black hole wouldn't even, wouldn't even notice it. In fact, there are supernovae that go off in binary systems, and the other star is still there. I mean, it's a lot of energy, but it's sent off in all directions, and that star is only in one. So unless it was really close, like if you were this close, this star decides to go supernova, you know, that accretion disk is probably going to get wiped out. But the black hole itself, it's not going to affect it. It won't affect that black hole. 
Yes, ma'am. Right. All that just circling around. The black hole or the the disk? This disk or the black hole itself? Well, what exactly is in the black hole itself? Then? The crushed remnants of whatever matter went into it. Could be just about anything. So with it pulling off of the companion, mm -hmm. would the black hole essentially start getting larger yes. by pulling that? Then? Yes, it would. Good point. It would actually get large. It would get more massive. So it would be collecting more material. And it would become larger in that its event horizon would grow. You know, so you'd go from being you know, two, three, four miles, five, six, and it would keep going, getting bigger and bigger slowly. Now, it's not going to go from being tiny to being gigantic. We're not going to get up to those. It's going to take many, many of these coalescing to form something like what we have at the center of the galaxy. But it would slowly grow over time. Now, once this star is gone, that's going to stop. There's not going to be enough material for it to pick up to gain. Um, there's several others, and as I finish up here, I think this is the last section I have for this, so we can go on to chapter 14. Uh, there are other ones that have similar characteristics. This is just one of the best where it's very distinct as to how much mass is left over. And as we'll come back to in the next couple of chapters, many galaxies contain what we call supermassive black holes. These were ordinary black holes. These are ones that are formed from a star that we've been talking about. There are supermassive black holes. A million solar masses would be a relatively small one. Uh, one at the center of our galaxy, which isn't one of the largest, is about three and a half to four million solar masses. So really a lot of material there. And that's not the largest. There are some that go up to you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of times the mass of the sun in other galaxies. So we do see them. We see these much larger black holes at the centers of galaxies. And we'll come to talk about those a uh, little bit next week. That's where I'm going to stop chapter 13. So were there any questions before I jump into 14 for a little bit to get started on that for Monday? No, no. Yes? Has a black hole ever broken down? Has a black hole ever broken down? A black hole can break down. Black holes do emit radiation a little bit. Not any information getting out of them. But what they can do, um, it's called Hawking radiation. You may recognize Stephen Hawking who comes, that comes from. You have the black hole there. You have the event horizon. What can happen is that out in space, particles can form and annihilate each other all the time. And that means you can form from nothing, you can form an electron and a positron. Right? A particle and antiparticle, they can just form. And then they normally immediately annihilate each other. So takes energy, gives off energy, net out in space, nothing happens. But if this happens close to a black hole, there's the possibility that one of those goes inside and one stays out. Now all of a sudden you have a little a particle that has just formed. That's a little bit of energy that has escaped from a black hole. If you have a tiny black hole, micro black holes, things that are you know, less than Earth size even, not the big ones that we've been talking about, they can evaporate very quickly and they would just actually explode in a shower of particles eventually. It would, technically it would happen to everyone every black hole, but for a very massive black hole, this would take an incredibly long period of time. And we're not talking millions or billions or trillions of years. We're way beyond anything we can, we can imagine. But yes, the black hole would eventually disappear. The little, little smaller it is, the quicker it disappears.
the bigger ones will last a lot longer. And that's what we call Hawking radiation after Stephen Hawking. Yeah, I've yeah. did a paper on the Large Hadron Collider. And okay. Hawking's radiation was one of the things that Yeah. Good. Anything else? Let me at least get the introduction. We'll get the introduction started for 14 then. Whoops, nope, we want this one. There we are. And as we're getting towards the end, I'm going to skip off the very introduction sheets there and we'll go ahead and start on... No, we'll start right there on the first slide. I'll skip going through the introduction, but I'll talk about it a little bit here. Chapter 14 is our galaxy. So we've spent the last few weeks talking about stars. Now we're working out and we're going to start talking about galaxies. And we talked about stars. We really talked about the sun first because it was the star we knew the best. Well, we talk about galaxies. The galaxy we know the best is our own Milky Way. It's the closest one to us. So that's what we're going to look at here. When we look at it, here's what we know of our galaxy now. Our galaxy has a central bulge area. It bulges out a little bit and a very thin disk that stretches out much farther. The number here, this, is eight, this stands for 8,000 parsecs. 8,000 parsecs would be about 25,000 light years. That's about how far we are from the center of our galaxy. When we, look at the, when we look at our galaxy in the sky, we've seen a couple images like this. We see something like this stretching across the sky. We see lots of dark, dusty areas in the center. We see some brighter areas where there's lots of stars that have formed. That's what we're looking. If you see this arrow, this is the white arrow. That's if you're looking towards the center of the galaxy. You're looking within the galaxy. If you look outside the galaxy, if you look in other directions, you don't see as many stars. So if you've ever been in a dark site and been able to see the Milky Way, you see there's a nice thin band that stretches across the sky. That's when you're looking either towards the direction of the center of our galaxy or away from it. You're looking in this disk. That's where most of the material is. If you look in the other directions, if you could look in the red arrows, you don't see as many stars. You're seeing mostly the nearby stars in this relatively thin area around the Earth. So when you look up this way, you don't see as many stars. When you look this way, you see lots and lots of stars. And we can't even see all the way in there. I think I've already told you our galactic center isn't visible to us, invisible light. So you can stand out there and stare at it all you want. Uh, early, late, late summer, go out and look south. And on the southern horizon will be the center of our galaxy. Doesn't stand out, doesn't glow really bright as it would if there were not all this dust there. In, in radio waves, if we point a radio telescope there, it's one of the brightest objects in the sky. It's one of the brightest radio objects in the sky because the radio waves can penetrate all that dust. One of the problems with trying to understand what the galaxy looks like is that we're stuck right here. We can't go around and look at it and see what it looks like from another view. We can't go and you know, zip up here and look down on it. We can't go further out here and look at it. We can't go at this angle. You know, we're stuck at one spot. And I think I've already done this for you, but I liken it to trying to figure out what blocker hall looks like without leaving this room. Okay? Might have a few windows you can look out, but do you know how far up it goes? If you're just stuck in here, you know, brought in blindfolded to a building, you can think of any building, but brought in blindfolded, you know, how high up does it go? Does it go up 20, 30, 50 stories? Or is that the ceiling? You know, if you can't move from this room, you've got a couple things. You might be able to look out of windows. You might get a few windows in. You know, some areas where you can look deeper into the galaxy. You can look at some kind of view. You might be able to look out and look at other buildings. You know, maybe all the other, I can see all these other buildings out there and they're all three stories high, so maybe this one's three stories high. 
That's about how we have to study galaxies. There are some measurements that we can make to determine things, count things in our galaxy, but it's very hard because of our positioning and where we're stuck. So, here's what we think our galaxy looks like. None of these are our galaxy. These are actually all other galaxies. These are several other spiral galaxies looked at from different angles. Here, one here, we're looking at it edge on. That's about how we see our Milky Way because we're stuck inside it. So that looks a little bit like a mini version of our Milky Way, but instead of stretching across the whole sky, it's just one little teeny tiny bit of the sky that we see here. But we see the same kind of dust that we see in our galaxy, we see the same bulge, and we see the same disk. So it looks very similar to that because we're stuck inside it. If we could make that trip and come out of here and come back and look down on our galaxy from this way, you might be able to see something like this. You'd still see that central area that's very bright, and you'd see spiral arms stretching out from it with all these blue stars. Lots of that we cannot see. If we're over here, we can see part of the way towards the center, but the rest of this is essentially invisible to us, at least in normal light. We cannot really see it. So these are just some examples of other spiral galaxies. Arms are very, very blue. That's because that's where all the stars are forming and we've got lots of hot blue stars there. Center portion, you can notice looks a little whitish to yellow. That's got a lot of older stars in it. Not as much star formation there. Most of the gas and dust has been used up. There isn't a lot left over there anymore. We see all different kinds of galaxies, but a lot of that is the subject of our next chapter. When we actually go chapter 15, we'll talk about other galaxies. But that's just some examples of what our galaxy may look like. Now here's one of the earliest maps of the Milky Way galaxy. And this is done by William Herschel back in the late 17 to early 1800s when he lived. And what he did was at the time all he could do was count stars. So what he did was look in all directions and, okay, point my telescope here, how many stars do I see? Move it a little bit, how many stars do I see? And count how many stars you see in each direction. Well, he did find that our galaxy was flattened. You notice that, that was an 8 before. That was an 8 when we knew what we know now. He had it about 3. He didn't have had our galaxy really underestimated in size. But that's what each of these are. It just counts as to how many stars he saw in each direction that he'd look out relative to the Milky Way. So when he looked outward away from the galactic center, he counted lots more stars than when he looked up or down. When he looked towards the galactic center, some places not as much. Some he actually got quite a few quite a few stars. Lots more stars were visible. One of the problems that he had is that he did not understand, again, this is a couple hundred years ago, we did not understand the effects of dust in the, in the galaxy. Dust is very good at blocking out that material. So all he didn't realize that all he's seeing is the stars, the relatively nearby stars. He's not seeing the stars at the center of our galaxy. He's not seeing the stars on the other side of our galaxy. He couldn't see any of that. So he didn't have that kind of understanding yet. That will come later. But it's one of the earliest maps. It did show that the galaxy was not a big round galaxy, that it was flattened in terms of that this, that this dimension is much smaller than this dimension. It was definitely very elongated. But to really determine the structure, we needed a little bit more, need a little more understanding, which we'll get coming up. And what I'm going to mention here, I'm going to finish up probably about this, and then we'll talk about how we use these types of stars. We talked about variable stars already. In a way, I talked about novae. We talked about supernovae. Right? They're stars that vary in brightness. 
They get brighter, then they get fainter again. Those are cataclysmic, right? A cataclysm, they're exploding. There's an explosion on the surface of the star, that's a nova. Supernova, the star's ripping itself apart. Those are cataclysmic events. You know, there are other stars that vary in luminosity, vary in brightness, in a more regular pattern. These are intrinsic variables. These are stars that actually pulsate. And there are stars that will get a little bit bigger and brighter, and then will get smaller and fainter again, and bigger and brighter. And with a regular period, maybe something of a day, every day to half a day, for some of the faster ones, to out to several months. They'll pulsate, they'll get a, become larger, and therefore much brighter, and then they'll compact back down. We talked about how stars were stable. There is an area that if the stars happen to pass through on the HR diagram where they become unstable and they can actually pulsate and they can get larger and smaller. For something like the Sun that doesn't happen. It's very stable where it happens to be located and any little changes inside are immediately wiped out. But there are other areas where you get a little bit of a change where you produce more energy in there. So you produce more energy and you expand the star but instead of doing it just a little bit and coming back it actually expands and comes back down expands, you know, say every 30 days. Expands out, comes back down. Gets a lot brighter and gets a lot fainter. These are truly variable stars. The star is actually varying in brightness. And there's two types of these. Um, RR Lyrae stars is one and Cepheids are the other. These are two different types that we will look at. Now why are these so important? Well it turns out that how they vary is related to how bright they are. This is going to give us a new way to determine how bright a star is. We had to use the HR diagram to determine how bright a star really is, its luminosity, how much energy it's really putting out. But now we're going to have a new way. We're going to have a new way using these stars to really be able to determine how bright a star is. If we can figure out how bright it really is, how much energy it's putting out, all of a sudden we get the distance. Because we know how bright it appears to be. That's easy. So this is going to give us a new way to determine distances using these, which we can do out to much larger. These are actually very large red giant stars. So we can see them over very vast distances. In fact, some of these can be seen in nearby galaxies. So now we're not just stuck determining distances right around us. We can actually determine distances out to some of the nearest galaxies with these. And that's what I want to talk about next time. But we've got a lab I've got to get set up for, so I'm going to go ahead and break here. And let you stretch and for a stretch for a couple minutes, and then we'll get started with lab. I'll get the computers booted up, and we'll get started with lab in, in a little bit here.